0: A delight and a joy um, for me to come and be here with you. Um, it is my privilege to be here. Um, I am an irregular attendee here at uh, Willow Park Church. I say that because I travel for a living. Uh, Willow Park Church is my home church. But I just don't get here all that often because I travel for a living. Um, I am a regional director for a group of churches, and that calls me away to uh, be on the road. And so um, when Phil texted me uh, a few months ago, I was sitting on a plane getting ready to leave. Kelowna, and my phone vibrated, and uh, they hadn't yet put on the notice to uh, put your phones away and put it on airplane mode, and so I'm sitting on the plane, and Phil gives me some dates as to when I possibly could come and speak at Willow, and I was like, no, 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 and then he gives me May 4th and 5th, and I was like, yeah, I can, I can do May 4th and 5th, that'd be great, and I said to him, uh, uh, actually, May 5th is a significant date for me, and he says, oh, what's, what's up? And I said, uh, well, May 5th is my uh, 40th wedding anniversary. That's for my wife, who's sitting right over there. And so uh, he says, oh, well, no, no. He says, I can't ask you to speak on that weekend. He says, uh, I said, no, no, uh, that's S-A-O-K. He says, are you sure? Do you need to check with Sue? I said, no, heck no. I said, no, that's, that's all good. And he said, well, no. He said, I want you to check with Sue before you say yes. I said, no, no, it's all good. Don't worry about it. And he says, are you absolutely sure? And Sue and I had already made plans. I didn't tell him that Sue and I had already made plans. We were going away before this weekend to uh, celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. And so uh, he said, "Uh, you're absolutely sure you don't need to check with Sue. And I said, Phil, come on. I didn't say this to him, but like, who's in charge? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. And so then I texted back, and I said, well, maybe I'll preach on that passage, you know, wife, submit to your husbands, and, and no, I'm not preaching on that passage either, so just calm down, and so uh, um, I said, no, it'll be my privilege, I said, I'd be absolutely thrilled to, to speak, it had been a long time since I spoke here, and so I was looking forward to this weekend, and so he said, so I can put you down, I said, yeah, put me down for May 4th and 5th, it would be my privilege, and so it is my 40th wedding anniversary, our 40th wedding anniversary, and so what a... What a joy um, to celebrate 40 years together, and so um, we have been rejoicing over that, and today will be a day that we will think through this and reflect, and um, just, um, it's an amazing thing, amazing journey to be on together and to do that. And so, uh, thank you for the applause earlier, and um, thank you to my wife for spending these 40 years with me, which, believe me, is no easy task. (laughs) I acknowledge that freely, believe me. Um, The other thing that Pastor Phil gave me the privilege of doing, I don't know, perhaps you've noticed in some of his messages, uh, Pastor Phil's been to Israel. Maybe you've noticed that. Uh, It was my privilege to take Phil to Israel uh, last November. And so uh, I'm going to Israel again, leading another tour to Israel uh, in November. And so uh, my wife has some brochures, and Pastor Phil gave me the privilege of uh, acknowledging that and, and letting you know about that. And so she has some brochures. She'll be out in the foyer afterwards. And if you're interested in going to Israel... We'd be glad to uh, take you there, and uh, we've got some information about that, and so let me just give a little plug about that, and Phil told me to do that, and so she'll be in the foyer afterwards, and if you'd like to have some more information about that, then um, we'd be glad to share that with you, and it'll be uh, in the end of November, beginning of December this year, and there was 10 of us who went from Willow Park last year with some others, and so um, it'll be a limited group that would be going this year, around 30 of us or so, and uh, it's just a life-changing adventure. Um, really and truly, it really is. And so if you'd like to go, we'd be glad to have you go with us. Um, Let me just pray for us, and then we're going to dive into a passage in the book of Philippians as I share very personally a journey that I've been on and how God has uh, touched my life through some um, health-related issues that he has taken me through, which I believe is his design, as he has drawn me into a deeper relationship with him by his own design. Let me just pray for us first as we uh, um, begin this journey for a few moments together. Let's pray. Father, you are good as we just um, were singing about you. It's a biblical truth, God. It's the very nature of your character that you are good. That is an unassailable truth. And the enemy wants to come in at times and cause us to question that truth and wonder about you, but, but is it a biblical truth that you are good. And so we celebrate that this morning as, as a church family. And, and maybe there are those of us here this morning who are going through circumstances that would cause us to wonder. Because of what we're wrestling with this day, is, is my God really good? And so we come back to the truth of your word this morning, Lord. And we will point to the truth that our God is good and Paul through his own circumstances in the book of Philippians will remind us of how incredibly great and good you are and so we thank you for who you are and for these moments that we'll spend together in your word and we invite you by your very presence to come in and as needed to comfort us or to convict us and draw us back in to a deeper and more intimate relationship with you because you are so good and so we thank you father and we invite you to do your work right now in the matchless name of your son our savior jesus christ amen and amen mr wilson mr wilson Do you know where you are? Mr. Wilson, Mr. Wilson, do you know where you are? Those are the words that I heard as I was riding in the back of an ambulance five or six times over the last number of months since August of this past year uh, into January the 6th when I had my last seizure, I had five or six seizures over that period of time and, and so the ambulance would come by and pick me up as my wife dialed 911 and, and I would be picked up at my home and that's where I had all my seizures and they would take me to Kelowna General Hospital to the emergency ward as, as the medical world was trying to figure out why I was having these seizures and, and try and diagnose what was going on with me medically. But I can remember those words because as I was regaining consciousness and, and uh, the EMTs were taking me to the hospital, those are the words I would hear. Those are the first things I'm hearing as as they're trying to talk to me and, and ask me. That's the first thing they say. Mr. Wilson, Mr. Wilson, do you know where you are? Because if I can't answer that question, there's no point going any further. Do you know where you are? It's a great question to ask, actually, generally in life. Do you know where you are in life? Not a bad question at all to ask yourself. Do you know where you are? And so if I got that question right, yes, I'm in the back of an ambulance, then they would go on with other questions. And when people have talked to me and asked me what it's like having a seizure, and and I try to explain to them what it's actually like, I'd say to them, and if you're under 35, I apologize because this illustration doesn't really work for you very well because you use devices that, um, when I say file folders, um, you talk about screens going blank and the, device, and the illustration doesn't work very well for you. But if you're older than 35, the, the illustration will work well for you because we have file folders in our past that we notice like you put them on desks and, and, uh, and so this is how this illustration works. Having a seizure, for me, I say it's like uh, when you had file folders and you put them on your desk, they all had tabs on them with information on the tabs telling you what the file folder was about. And each file folder would tell you what was inside the file folder. And so having a seizure would be like as if all your file folders got knocked off your desk, and then they all went on the floor, and as each one went on the floor, well, all the information would get mixed up, and and it would go on the floor, and and so the information's all there, but it's all mixed up, and... and, um, It hasn't gone, you haven't lost the information, it's just that it's mixed up. And you need to get the file folder put back together into the right file and put back on the desk again. And so the EMT would then ask me after I got the right question or the right answer to the first question, do you know where you are? Yeah, I'm in the ambulance. She'd say, okay, do you know what day of the week it is? That might be one question I would ask. And if I got that one right, yeah, it's Tuesday, okay, we carry on. What's your date of birth? Sometimes I get that one wrong. And so my birth date is April the 6th, and I'd say April 4th. Well, I got it partially right, April, but then I'd get the 6th mixed up with the 4th because, well, I just got it mixed up. So the information's there, actually, but I just got it mixed up a little bit. And so you'd see the little nod, the shake of the head, and I'd want to ask, well, what is the right answer? And they won't give you the right answer because they want you to answer the question, which is only logical. They're not going to help you. And so when I'm having lunch with some friends and, and they say, well, what are some of the other questions? And so there's a whole variety of questions they ask you trying to know, well, how could, they're building a case to see I'm sh- answer, how many questions they can actually ask you to get right. And so like, they say, well, what, what year is it? I'd get that one wrong. I said one time, 2015. Missed that one by several years. One time they asked me, who's the Prime Minister of Canada? I said Stephen Harper. I was having lunch with a friend recently, and they said, "Um, actually, that was just wishful thinking on your part. (laughs) That's not a political statement. I just had the information mixed up. He had been the prime minister at one point in time. I just had the information mixed up. So my seizures, when they started, I went through then a process of medical um, exams and, and tests and processes, and, and they were trying to figure out what, what was causing my, my problems. And, and so after all the tests, I went into the neurologist's office and sat down, and, and he sat behind his desk and he folded his arms and rolled back in his office chair and and i sat there and i leaned forward in my chair and and i was waiting for the results of the test because i wanted to know why i was having the seizures and he leans back and and looks all official as as he is because he's a neurologist and and uh he says mr wilson and i'm like yes yes he says there is nothing medically wrong with you well that's not the answer i thought i was going to get not that there's anything wrong with that answer And I said, so why am I having the seizures? And he says, I don't know. Well, that's kind of okay, but kind of not, because it's not answering my question. Why am I having the seizures? And so uh, we're carrying on at this point in time without having any medical answers. And he just shrugs his shoulders and he says, There's nothing medically wrong with you, and so let's just carry on. I'm like, Yeah, but we're just walking ahead without any clear answers as to what's going on and so during that process late fall and and i'm in the book of philippians in my devotional time and and i'm looking for answers and god's giving me some answers and so the titles of this message is life lessons from the back of an ambulance and i'm working with paul on on some of my questions and so turn with me in your bibles to the book of philippians because i think i found some answers that i trust will be helpful for you as well life lessons from the back of an ambulance Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read through verses 1 through to 11, and um, I trust that they will be uh, helpful for you as well. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through to 11. Now, a couple of things that are clear that we need to, be under, or we need to understand is that, number one, Paul wrote this book from prison. That's just a, a fact. He had been a Pharisee at one point in time in his life, And uh, he had met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and and his life had been forever changed after that. Uh, He was a very learned man, a very educated man, uh, a man who had been absolutely transformed by Jesus Christ. And yet now, as he writes from prison, we're going to see clearly that there are some things that used to be really important to him that are no longer important to him now. Because he had met Jesus Christ, and now Christ is all that is important to him. But he is writing from prison. That is what is most important as we read this passage. So it's halfway through the book, and we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's listen as I read here from chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Again, remember, important context, that he's writing from prison. And just listen to what he says. Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. This is where Paul gets into his testimony, his background, his history. And again, context is important. Writing from prison, he's telling his story now of where he came from. He was a Pharisee. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is his background. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews... In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Paul had went after the early church. Wanted to destroy it. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Talking about how zealous and pure he once was from a religious standpoint as a Pharisee. Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. The transition takes place here. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes through the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead life lessons from the back of an ambulance lesson number one lesson number one clarity is a beautiful thing Remember I said, file folders on the floor, not so clear, things are not real, all that kind of f- foggy and messed up? Well, clarity is a beautiful thing. That's found in verses 1 through to 9, because clarity, number one, allows me to rejoice. Clarity allows me to rejoice. Paul's in prison. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. How is it that a guy in prison, writing to people who are free, these people called... F- Uh, people who are living in Philippi, this this area where they are free, how is it that the guy who is chained and in prison, how is it that he can write to people who are free and he says, I want you to rejoice? How is that possible? He commands, it's an instruction. It's not a suggestion, it's an instruction. He says, I want you to rejoice. Well, if we were to go through the book, this little book of Philippians, we would see that in chapter 1, verse 4, Chapter one verse eighteen, chapter one verse twenty five, chapter two verse two, chapter two verses seventeen and eighteen, chapter two verses twenty eight and twenty nine, chapter four verse one, chapter four verse four, and chapter four verse ten, Paul connects rejoicing to a relationship and not to circumstances, and especially not to stuff or possessions clarity. So as I'm going through my own health-related issues last fall and I'm reading through this book, I couldn't tell you how many times last fall I read through Philippians. I read through it sometimes just sitting down and reading it from chapters 1 through 4. Sometimes I'd only read a verse or two and I'd get stuck and I'd stop. Sometimes I'd read through a chapter and go hmm, interesting, I want to go back and read through that chapter again. Sometimes I would just read a verse or two and I'd stop. And what I learned as I was going through that is the clarity that came to me was this idea that when I'm in my own little world of looking at this is that rejoicing in joy is not in my circumstances. And if you walk out of here in just a few moments' time, I want you to be very clear about this. If you don't remember anything else about this message, please take that home today. Please take home the, the clarity and the, and the understanding that Your joy, my joy, is that rejoicing and the ability to be able to rejoice is not in our circumstances. It is only clearly in our relationship with a person named Jesus. My father pointed that out to me Repeatedly, well, I rode in an ambulance. Well, I sat in the emergency ward in Kelowna General Hospital. Well, I came home from Kelowna General Hospital. That my joy was not based in my health. Because, you see, all that stuff can be taken from me, but what he pointed out to me was that Jesus could not be taken from me. And so I don't know what your circumstances are today. But what I can tell you is that if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that cannot be taken from you. And you can rejoice in that truth. Because it's a biblical truth that Paul says, I want you finally, my brothers, to rejoice in the Lord. He says, "There's no trouble for me to write that same thing to you again, and it's a safeguard for you." He wants them to understand that he's in prison, and he, the one in prison who's chained, he said, "I want you to rejoice in this truth. Rejoice in Jesus." And my father pointed it out to me while I was struggling with my health. In the past week, as I was preparing to, to again get this message ready, I, I had I couldn't, several different texts from several different friends who were going through different circumstances. And let's be clear, that's what they are, they're circumstances. I got a text last Monday as I'm walking off the plane here in Kelowna from a friend of mine. He says, hey, Russ, um, just for your information, I want you to know that my brother passed away early this morning, 6 a.m., from a massive heart attack. He's one of my pastors His brother was one of my pastors in Winnipeg. I didn't know, obviously, until I got the text. Funeral was this past Friday. Got another text from my administrative assistant that I work with that her daughter was going in for tests that they ended up, by the time we worked through it this week, that by Friday, her three-year-old daughter, they decided as parents to have her eye removed. And she said it was the worst decision that she had to make in her life. And it was like, the enemy's coming along and saying, you want to talk about rejoicing? Well, what about this, and what about this, and what about this? Horrible circumstances. And again, let's be clear, that's what these are. They're all circumstances. My co-worker is telling me about his daughter, their first grandchild has got five different brain abnormalities She's five to six months pregnant, and she's got a child that she's going to give birth to that will never be normal. And he says, I don't even know how to pray. He says, will you, my friend, pray for me? And I ended up with a a long, long phone conversation on Friday of this week where I've got tears running down my face. And I pray for him. And it's like the enemy saying, oh yeah, great, you're gonna talk about rejoicing. And I'm thinking, how can I preach this message when all these circumstances are coming along and they're awful, awful situations? And God whispers to me, go back to the truth of who I am. Because in all those circumstances, the truth doesn't change that I will be with every single one of those individuals And I am their comfort and I am their strength. And the enemy wants to mock and turn us away from our Jesus because Jesus won't be taken from them. Oh, those are hard situations. Oh, those are heartbreaking circumstances. But make no mistake, those are circumstances. And my heart breaks for those people because I know every one of them personally. And so I struggle. And what do I do when I struggle? Well, I come back to the truth. And the truth is is that my joy is not based upon my circumstance. My joy is based upon my relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I pray for those people. And know those aren't joyful situations. But I point them back to the person who is going to be there with them in each and every moment of those heartbreaking circumstances. And his name is Jesus Clarity, a joy is in a relationship. It's not found in the stuff of this world. His name is Jesus. Paul says, "Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord." Clarity also allows us to worship. He says, "Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh." Is we who are the circumcision, we who worship. And I love what Paul does here in verse 3. He says, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus. And again, what does he do? He points them back. The one who is in prison points them back to Jesus Christ. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself have reasons for such confidence. He goes on to say that if it was about the flesh, he above all people of his day would have all kinds of reasons to be confident. Why? Because of his history. He had a long history of being a very religious man. He had a long history of being the most religious, if you would. He was the Pharisee's Pharisee. He was at the top of the heap, religiously speaking. He had studied long and he had studied hard. And Paul said... Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he gives this history in verses four, five, and six. And then he gets to verse seven and he makes this valid transition because here he talks about how he met Christ. He says, But whatever was for my profit, I now consider loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's like he puts a scale up and he, he weighs what he once had as a Pharisee on a scale because he had lots as a Pharisee. That tam, time, day and age, uh, he had all kinds of standing that would have given him a pretty cool life, a pretty great life as a Pharisee. And he says, when I look at what I had, I say, you know what? It pales compared to what I now have with Jesus. And I lost everything, but what I gained, I've got everything with Jesus. Have you done that recently? Have you looked at what you have in Jesus? And are you willing to say, "I, I would, if the world takes it all, I don't care? Because what I have with Jesus is better than anything that the world's got to offer me? Because my Jesus is worth more than anything that this world could ever give me? And if the world came along and stripped me bare, I'd say it doesn't matter because it pales in comparison to my Jesus. As I was reading through this little book of Philippians last fall, I was praying. And sometimes when I pray, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I pray, I also tell God how to answer my prayer. Do you ever do that? I give him directions. I pray, but then I give him the directions on how to answer the prayer too. And I think he probably is so kind that he says, well, thanks, but I've got my own Style of how I'm going to do this. And so, as I gave him the directions on how to answer my prayer, I think he probably appreciated that and said, Yeah, but that's okay. I've got my own plan on this. And so, lesson number two is determining what's important is actually really important. It's in verse 10. So Paul gets through verses one through to nine, and how he transitioned verses seven and eight, and he considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And just think about that—we can't even begin to compare Paul's in prison, and and um, if we use our best imagination, we can't imagine a Roman prison. We just can't. It was such an awful place to be, and there he's he's lost everything for the sake of Christ. And he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And he makes this transition for us. And, and there's this guy who used to have it all and, and he's, he's just got this heart desire. And just imagine the man who once had everything, the man who once had the standing of, of all standings, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, who, who now is now in Roman prison and he hadn't done anything wrong. The only thing that he'd done wrong was he's out there preaching Jesus Christ. That's actually why he's in prison. So just imagine with me that he's shackled in prison and and if you went back to chapters 1 and 2, you'd realize that they they had him chained to another uh, guard and and they kept on switching the guards, the scholars tell us, because he kept on leading them to faith. And they'd have to put another guard beside him. And he said, I'm actually in prison and it's okay because it's for the advancement of the gospel. He kept on leading more guards to Christ. And he's okay with it. And so he gets to chapter 3, and, and he says, I've lost everything for the sake of Christ, and I'm okay with this. And whatever I had, I, I consider it rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And so just imagine that this man who had once had everything has now lost everything, and he says, I'm okay with it all, because I just want, I just want to gain Christ. Verse 9 and I want to be found in him. And I, want to, I, I, I tried the whole idea of having a righteousness of my own, but that doesn't work. That was the Pharisee way. And then look at verse 10, because here's where determining what's important is really important. Because in verse 10 he says, just imagine, he's sitting in prison, and he's writing this on some piece of parchment with a guard right beside him. And he's in this terrible prison. And here's Paul this intelligent, brilliant man. And he writes this out. Just picture this with me. In this awful place. And he writes this down on this piece of parchment paper. And he writes, think of his heart. And he writes this down and he says, what I want more than anything else. He says, I want to know Christ. This learned, brilliant man More than anything on the face of the earth, more than anything else at this stage of my life, Paul says, This is what I want. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Determining what's important is actually really important. Paul knew the scriptures inside and out, but what he really wanted was to know Jesus better. And that word know, the scholars tell us, isn't book knowledge. It's relational. And so Paul's not talking when he says, I want to know Christ. He's not talking about more book knowledge. He's actually talking, I want to know Jesus better relationally. Do you? You see, let me just be really honest with you. Willow Park Church, do you want to know Jesus better? Because I want to be part of a church family that at its very core, longs to know Jesus better. I want to be part of a church family that says, at its deepest core, is longing to walk closer with Jesus. Determining what's important is really important. And so I prayed that prayer last fall. After the medical world had told me, after they'd gone through all the tests that they could possibly do with me, and they came back to me and they said, there's nothing medically wrong with you. Then I turned back into these scriptures, and I said, then this is spiritual. Spiritual. And I said, then, we dove into the scriptures, my wife and I, and I said, then here's what's important. At this stage of my life, then there's nothing more important for me. And I prayed this prayer, Philippians 3.10. I said, then, this is the most important thing for me personally. I don't care about any other accolades or any other positions or or anything else from a financial or, or status standpoint or anything else, what I care about is that I get to know Jesus better. And so I prayed, Philippians 310. And I think then the enemy went to work, and then there's been suffering from a physical standpoint. And he's tried to dissuade me physically. And the battle's been on so that I've enacted prayer support that he would not win. And the battle's been on. Is there anything more important than knowing Jesus better? And the answer is no. There's nothing more important than knowing Jesus better. In February of this year, I was down national board meetings, national leadership meetings. We went from Monday to Thursday. On Tuesday... One of my pastors, who's a chair of our Western Region Council, gets a call that uh, he's got a little girl in his church who's dying from a rare disease. She's 10 years old. And uh, he says, I've got to leave the meetings. He says, I've got to get back to Winnipeg for, uh, to be with the family. And he's just devastated because he's been walking with his family through this process. And, and so Myron um, gets back in his rental car and he goes taking it off to uh, uh, Toronto International Airport. He wants to get on a flight back to Winnipeg to be with the family. So Tuesday night, he goes racing back to Toronto, and uh, I text him Wednesday morning to see if he's back in Winnipeg, and he says, no, actually, I'm not. He says, "Um, I'm sitting here in the airport, and the airline says the best they can do is they think maybe Wednesday by noon I can get back to Winnipeg. He says, but a really weird thing happened about 6 a.m. this morning. I said, what's that? He says, 6 a.m., he says, I'm sitting here, and and the thing about Myron you need to know is that uh, he's the least looking pastor kind of guy you could ever want to meet, he said, I love him, but he doesn't really look like a pastor. He looks more like a biker. He's got a beard, and, and he's kind of a stocky-looking guy, and uh, he just doesn't have a come-talk-to-me sort of look about him, and more like a don't-talk-to-me sort of look. I love him, and he's a great guy. And, and, uh, it, but anyway, he's sitting in the airport by himself, hasn't slept all night, and uh, he says, about 6 a.m., this guy comes up to him and says, Hey, buddy, now, I'm shocked all by that, all by itself. But uh, this guy comes up to him and says, hey, buddy, and uh, Myron says, what? That alone should have told the guy to get lost, but uh, the guy didn't get lost, and uh, Myron says, what? And the guy says, "Uh, I've just got the sense I'm supposed to pray for you. And um, so Myron said that it was a kid, and I says, later on when I texted with him, I says, when you said kid, what do you mean? He says, well, the guy's maybe 20 years old so um, I says, well, then what happened? And so uh, Myron said, when the guy said he was supposed to pray for him, Myron said to him, sit down. And that's just the kind of way Myron is. He's kind of a little brusque. But uh, the kid sits down, and um, Myron tells him a story. Tells him about this little girl that's dying. Tells him about how he's trying to get home. And uh, the kid puts his hand on Myron's shoulder, prays for him, and gets up and leaves. And so... Uh, after Myron tells me that story, we're just texting back and forth and stuff, I says to Myron, hey, that's some kind of God you should serve. Out of the most busy international airport that we've got in Canada, there's this God that we serve that looked down from heaven and he saw you a tired, weary pastor who knew you were just so exhausted that you needed someone who would come alongside of you to pray for you. And he whispered into the ear of a 20-year-old kid and said, I've got one thing I need you to do today. And he said, what's that, Father? I need you to go and pray for this guy. And the kid said, that guy? And believe me, Myron's not the most approachable guy you want to try and find in an airport pray for. And the kid said, yes, Father, I'll do it. And he walked up beside Myron and said, I've just got the sense that I'm supposed to pray for you. He doesn't know him from Adam. And Myron did not give him the best response right off the bat, just said, what? And then he told him to sit down. And he prayed for her. And it was exactly what Myron needed at that stage of his life. And I just said to Myron, that's some kind of God that you serve, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I want to get to know that Father better. And he invites us into a deeper relationship with him. And he says, I am so open to wanting." you to get to know me better that i will walk with you deeper and deeper and i am only too glad to invite you into a deeper and deeper walk what could be better upon the face of this earth than getting to know him better and better and he's so open to it you tell me what could be better than the prayer of Philippians 3, verse 10, that Paul prays and says, I want to know him better. You tell me, what could be better? Now, is there a cost? Yeah, because Paul prayed and he says, "In the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. I'm seeing my Jesus in ways that I've never seen him before since last August, September, October, when I started to pray that prayer. It is so worth it that I invite you to pray that prayer as you leave today and to share in the blessings of getting to know Jesus better. And let us as a church be a church that just delves into a deeper and deeper relationship with a Jesus that is so amazing, why would we not accept his invitation to know him better and better? There'll be people up here at the front after the service. I'd be only too glad to pray with you. Let me just close in prayer, and we'll just... Father, thank you so much for who you are. And for your invitation, I want to know Jesus better. I want to be blessed by the beauty and the joy of your presence. I want to know the power of your resurrection, and yeah, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Lord, you're beautiful. You're amazing. You're beyond everything and anything that we could imagine, and we accept your invitation, that we would know you better, Jesus. In your matchless name we pray, amen and amen.